Our special guest this week is Andy Roth, president of the State Freedom Caucus Network, an organization committed to developing and supporting true conservative representation in state legislatures across America. Our topics this week include a discussion on the recent failure of Republicans to stop a massive increase in the nation's debt ceiling, and we examine how the grassroots can impede the red flag legislation aimed for Tennessee. My name is Kevin Cookagee, and with my good friend Gary Humble, this is the Freedom Matters Podcast. Man, hang on, you're going to have to give me a second. That's not enough for me yet. It's not. Yeah, and I wouldn't expect you to know. Okay, are we in the are we in the Christian music genre? No, here? No, 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 no. Okay, well then I'm way. I have no idea. Okay, no clue. <clears throat> so the the artist is U two, and if Fox were here, he would love this, right? Wow. But it's late U two. It's like yeah. 20, 2015, So after okay. they were already. Famous. I'm not hearing traditional Bono. In but this. listen to the lyrics. Baby, it's a red flag day. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that? Can you that's, hear that, Andy? Red flag day. That's our. That's our struggle. <laughs> That's today's struggle here in Tennessee. All right. So Kevin always with a very poignant. Yes, we're going to talk song. about red flag laws. So I thought that would be a good song to start with. Um, so we have a guest in the studio via Zoom today, Gary, and uh, I'm going to give him an intro, and then we'll have a conversation. Our guest this week is Andy Roth, president of the State Freedom Caucus Network. And he worked for a combined 18 years at the Club for Growth. It's actually where I met him about 10 years ago. And the Club for Growth Foundation, most recently as the foundation's executive director. Before that, Andy was a securities trader for an established broker deal, dealer in Omaha. <laughs> for an established broker dealer. That's hard to say. Broker dealer in Omaha, Nebraska. At that time, Andy was also the owner and publisher for the Iron Fist of Capitalism. I love that name. A website that analyzed supply-side economics and its positive effects on national politics and the financial markets. Advocating for economic freedom and limited government, he has appeared on ABC, CNBC, MSNBC, CNN, C-SPAN, Fox News, Fox Business Channel, basically all the channels. His writings have been published in the New York Times, Politico, U.S. News, National Review, and the Washington Examiner. He is also a 2012 Lincoln Fellow at the Claremont Institute. Another point we have in common, except when I applied, I think I applied probably about the same year, I got rejected for a Lincoln Fellows, <laughs> even though I got like some really good uh, referrals, but it's probably because Andy got the, because don't they only take like two, two per year or something to that? Yeah, I don't know, but I'll put in a good word for you if you want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I don't have time to do it now, but, and I'll finish your bio. Uh, Mr. Roth has a bachelor's degree in business administration from the University of Kansas, so he's a Jayhawk, and a master's degree in economics from George Mason. Andy Gary has graciously agreed to join us in the studio today for a conversation about how to ignite the brush fires for freedom under our own Tennessee Republican majority. So welcome, Andy. That. Yeah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I, I guess it just shows how old I am that I actually put in my bio that I was on uh, MSNBC and wrote for the New <laughs> yes. York Times. But back then, it was kind of normal to to go on those shows. It no longer is. So you've got to update your bio then. You've got I to do. have I do. Your, pe yeah. your people, right, have yeah. to go update your bio. As, as, as you were reading that, I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't watch any of that crap this evening. <laughs> <laughs> so I've known Andy for 10 years. Um, I met Andy when he was at Club for Growth. And um, that was actually when I was almost running for U.S. Senate against mm -hmm. Lamar Alexander. Alexander. And I was being interviewed by all of the important people on our side of the aisle in D.C. So um, Andy was introduced to me by, I think it was either Daniel Horowitz or Russ Vogt that introduced me to you. Yeah, well, the country uh, lost out on that for you not running. So uh, it's it's our loss. Well, that's very kind of you to say. I, my family, I think, though, appreciates that I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and for your own sanity, too, I agree. Yes, yes. 
So, Gary, go ahead. We've got a lot to talk about. Well, I'll, I'll just tell you, look, I, as, a, as a Tennessean and fighting for conservative values here in our state, I've, I've really appreciated, I uh, feel like, some of the air cover that uh, you yourself and some of the State Freedom Caucus Network has provided. And, uh, look, I'll just say it, kind of re- repudiating this move by Governor Bill Lee and other associated establishment Republicans here in our state that are crazy enough honestly I I, I can't I, I can't even fathom what their political reasoning is for this necessarily in in a state like Tennessee but to push the notion of these emergency protection order you know uh, really for lack of a better term we, we use different terminology here in Tennessee you know to make things feel good you know we, we just uh, we just passed a law that's now going to allow toll roads in our stable, but we don't call them, we call them choice lanes, see, so it makes everything different. So, so what you find here in the legislature is we don't, we, we're not calling these red flag laws. We just call them something else, but that's, that's what they are. And, um, so I, I just love to hear, you know, your perspective on, on the national conversation on what you're seeing here in Tennessee. Um, and, and how, how could this be happening in Tennessee? How could we fight better to ensure that this doesn't happen in Tennessee? But all that to say, thank you, because we are we are fighting against an apparatus here that seems bent on putting these things into place here in Tennessee, though the grassroots conservatives are em- emphatically against anything remotely close to being construed a red flag law. So how do we... How do we fight that, I guess, is the big question. Yeah, good question. I mean, for decades and decades, the public has been trained to believe that the country is a two-party system with Democrats and Republicans. Democrats are for bigger government. Republicans are for smaller government. Um, Democrats are uh, want to take away your freedoms. Republicans want to uh, keep and protect your freedoms. We need to get rid of that. Um, idea. Um, there is no longer Republicans and Democrats. There is the uniparty, which is the Democrats and um, establishment Republicans. And then there are conservatives, or from my perspective, there's the House Freedom Caucus in, in Congress. So that's the, the new two-party system. What we're trying to do is export that idea and that notion into the states because the states like Tennessee have the exact same problems as DC. And even though Tennessee is a deep red state that Trump won enormously, even though the voters themselves believe in limited government, they're socially conservative, even though the voters are with us, the establishment is not. And in Tennessee, you're seeing that just with sirens going off. There is no excuse for one of the most conservative states in the country with Republican majorities in both houses and a Republican governor to entertain the idea of having a special session to adopt red flag laws to take away your Second Amendment rights. What's remarkable about this is that just was it last year when you guys passed constitutional carry? It's like almost. But yes, go ahead. It's a sign of weakness on behalf of the establishment that they will go wherever the wind blows. Mm -hmm. And that's why every state needs a freedom caucus because they need to be the North star, the conservative North star that the voters can always look to and say, that is our position and it's unwavering. And so I'm surprised by what Tennessee is doing, but I'm actually not surprised. And I think it's just up to us as conservatives to fight back and not just people in Tennessee to fight their governor and to fight the establishment, but we need the entire country to fight back against what Governor Lee is doing because you have to protect your Second Amendment rights wherever they're being attacked. Mm -hmm. Andy, tell us why, because I I think our audience is curious why we don't have a state freedom caucus in Tennessee. there, There are 11 states, right? Am I correct in that number? Yeah, and and let me back up and just explain what the State Freedom Caucus Network does. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of years ago, then House Freedom Caucus Chairman Andy Biggs, uh, Mark Meadows, former House Freedom Caucus founder, uh, and a few others, I got together with them 
And we knew that this was a problem. We knew that the states were falling behind. And we tossed around this idea of creating state freedom caucuses. And, and we never really had the capacity or the bandwidth to start doing something. But in December of 2021, we finally made the leap and we created the State Freedom Caucus Network. And our job is to find conservative state lawmakers in every state that's willing and we help them put together a Freedom Caucus. And you know this, and your listeners probably know this, but unlike Congress, state lawmakers are part-time. Um, they're not full-time, but the establishment works full-time. Mm-hmm. The governor right. has lobbyists, the governor has advisors, That's the governor has consultants, the governor has lawyers, the woke agencies that run state government, that's full-time, they're well-funded, and the special interest lobbyists, they work year-round. So when a, a part-time legislature gavels out of their session, most of the lawmakers go home to their full-time jobs and to their families, and they kind of check out until it's time to gavel in. Well, who's minding the store? Like, I, I had one House Freedom Caucus member uh, who was previously a state lawmaker. He said, Andy, that's exactly right. I once had a lobbyist whisper in my ear. He said, I can't wait for you guys to gavel out and go home mm. because then we can be in charge again. Wow. That's yeah. the that's the sort of cartel that operates at the state level. And so we launched our first state freedom caucus in Georgia uh in December of 2021. Then we went to Mississippi, South Carolina, and a few others until Louisiana was our most recent one. That was our 11th one. Now, in in all of this intervening time, uh we did reach out to folks in Tennessee and uh, this may be a well-known secret in in a lot of conservative circles in Tennessee but we went to Nashville and we sat down with what we thought were the most conservative members of the legislature we had a um a room you know with 10 lawmakers and myself mm-hmm. and our vice president and we explained to them what the process was we explained to them what a Tennessee Freedom Caucus does and how they operate and all I got was blank stares. And I had one gentleman defend the Ford Motor Plant subsidies mm. that the government <laughs> shelled out. I had another person who defended or who was opposed to school choice. And then I had even yet another person who was defending uh, higher taxes on hotels and motels. And, and this was I from said, this was oh, from a group of. This wasn't the general legislature, right? This is a very small group of supposedly conservative. And, and by the way, higher taxes on hotels and motels to pay for a Tennessee Titans stadium in Nashville. So mm-hmm. yeah, go. Well, go not just uh, Tennessee Titans, but the Predators and a minor league team in Knoxville. I mean, it, <laughs> it goes on and on. It's it's actually quite remarkable how your state spends on on sports subsidies. Mm. But anyways, I when we're in this room, I looked to my vice president who came along, and I was like, "Are we even in the right room?" And we left uh, on a friendly note, but we basically agreed that there was not going to be a Tennessee Freedom Caucus um, anytime soon because they just did not grasp what we were trying to do. Mm -hmm. So tell us, I was intrigued, Andy, about some of the states, and I think our audience, you named some of them, but aren't there even some very liberal states that have a Freedom Caucus because we've got, well, I'll let you tell the story. Isn't there a Freedom Caucus like in Connecticut or one of the northeastern states? No, there is not. But our our most, uh, our bluest oh, state wrong. is Illinois. And we <laughs> Sorry, have I said Illinois that up. Like, okay, yeah. well, Illinois, that's, but, that's, that's about as far blue. left as you can get. Yeah. But, but I'll tell you what, like the blue states are some of the best, right? Because when you're not in the super minority mm-hmm. in a blue state, um, you have a uh, the ability to be loud and conservative as much as you want. Um, uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. Um, a, a lot of Republicans in blue states realize that they have no power. So what they do is they go along with the Democrat agenda. Mm. They'll vote no here and there, but on on bills where the public is not paying attention, they'll vote with the Democrats because they know that the Democrats will give them some of the crumbs left over from dinner that they can take back to their districts so that they can continue to enable the Democrats. Mm. But putting that point aside, a lot of the blue states are actually fertile ground for us. Um, you mentioned Connecticut. I do have a lot of hope there. I have a lot of hope for uh, Maine and Rhode Island. I think we can get there soon. But the the red states, the deep red states, those are the biggest problems. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. Two points I'll make. Gary and I have talked about um, both here on this 
podcasts as well as in other areas, one of our principal problems is we have too big of a majority. Our, our, our giant majority in Tennessee means that we don't have any power. The, the true conservatives don't have any power. And that seems to have been the way that it was in Congress. I know we've we've got a debt ceiling issue we've got to talk about. But the changes that we were able to put um, into Congress in January were a result of having such a small, such a narrow minority that we won in 2022. And um, that goes part and parcel with I grew up in Pennsylvania. My wife and I lived in Philadelphia. She's a Philadelphia native before we moved to Tennessee 30, almost 32 years ago. But the difference is when we walked down the street in Philadelphia, people knew who you were and you could you could have your convictions. And yes, people say, oh, the North, they're like really mean. Well, yeah, but you know where they stood. When we moved to the South, there was this superficial covering over what people say, they would say nice things to you and people would call it Southern hospitality. And then we'd turn around and find out that they were stabbing us in the back and they didn't agree with us at all. And this is what I found out in the, in the South. So to your point, Andy, I think it's more difficult in an area where people just assume that it's red and they assume that people share their values. Well, and that's the big lie, right? Is the deception that liberals create is that if they do live in a red state, they know they can't get elected with a D after their name. So what do they do? They put an R after their name and then exactly. run. And then they yeah, get elected buddy. and vote like liberals. It's, <clears throat> it's a classic move uh, that we have to stop and that we have to expose. The other thing that, that we have to just shatter to pieces is this idea that the Republican Party is a big tent party. Mm-hmm. And Come uh, on, I mean, speaking my language right here. Yeah, I mean, a big tent means that you have a circus, which is you have <laughs> You're exactly no right values there. and you have no principles. If if you don't stand for certain principles, then you you don't have a brand. You don't have an effective message to the voters. Mm-hmm. So we we got to abolish these these red states that are run by liberals, and we got to banish this idea that we have to have a big tent in order to win. Yeah, the the republic. I've, I've said this often. The the Republican Party has at whether it be at the federal level the state level the local level it has no value beyond its ability to stand for and hold and promote conservative principles and if the party is not able to do that then it has no it's lost the value proposition that it presents to voters and I don't think enough people really see that. They're willing to vote for the R by their name, but there has to be a value principle behind that. And I'm I'm curious to know from your perspective how many other states maybe are are like ours. All also, of them. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I also try to make the point that, you know, yeah, we have we have a supermajority here in Tennessee in both houses, but most people don't really understand what that means. That doesn't just mean that the Republican Party controls the uh, committees and has the chairman and has the votes. But it also means in the state of Tennessee, both in the House and in the Senate, we have a constitutional quorum with Republicans only. So in the state of Tennessee, what I try to get across to people, because in their minds, it's like going to the local House rep and, and you go to their local campaign potluck. Well, they always want to talk about the, oh, Biden and the left and but the, the fact is, anything that's not happening on a conservative bent here in Tennessee is not because of the left. It's, it's because of the Republican Party. We have a, a, a quorum, which means not one Democrat, not one, needs to show up to work. And the Republicans themselves can gavel in, have session, make law, and be done with it. That's the situation here. So we're not... We're not fighting the the Democrats. Uh, we're fighting wolves in sheep's clothing. Yeah, that's what we're fighting. Are, are, yeah, are you I mean, are you seeing that set up in other states, or is Tennessee somewhat unique, unique. to have that Republican constitutional quorum in our state? No, uh, pick, pick any deep red state, and they have the exact same problem as Tennessee. the The Daily Wire, uh, an online publication that a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with, they mm-hmm. came out with a four part series recently where they said that there are 19 states that are better positioned to pass conservative policies than Florida. 
And Florida, as we know, under DeSantis is just cranking it out. I mean, they're they're passing awesome legislation, fighting the bad guys, fighting the the woke left. They're doing everything right. And so the Daily Wire asked the question, well, why aren't these 19 states, which includes Tennessee, why aren't they just as good? And the reason why, in plain sight, is because we have progressives and liberals in the Republican Party. And the biggest problem is that most voters, unfortunately, don't know who their state rep is. They don't know who their state senator is. And very little media attention is placed on the state capitol. Everybody's focused on D.C. They're focused on the House Freedom Caucus and the left and AOC and Biden and everything up up in D.C., but they don't know what's going on in the state capitol. And that's partly our fault. Uh, so all we need to do is just vastly educate the public about how there are wolves in sheep's clothing at the state level, at the state capitol in the Republican Party. You know, Andy, when you were talking, um, and, and Gary alluded to it a little bit, I'll give you a perfect example locally in Williamson County, what happened to how we became <laughs> how we have these wolves in sheep's clothing politically. There was a, so I, I was chairman of the Williamson County Republican Party from 2011 to 2013. <clears throat> a couple of chairmen prior to me, I think this was around uh, 2004, used to boast of this. This was, his, this was his boast. He said, Kevin, when I became chairman, most of the county commission were Democrats. And he said, I went to them and I told them, you guys need to change and become Republicans or I'm going to run somebody against you. <laughs> and so they all became Republicans. And this chairman we won. and this chairman patted himself on the back for turning the county Republican. And yet these commissioners, some of which are still commissioners today, they are moving ahead with progressive, regressive tax policy, have been growing the budget, busting the budget for 20 years and yet the challenge when i was chairman was kevin you can't challenge them because they're republicans it's it's insanity that that actually needs one of those screams yeah we we face reagan's 11th commandment thou shalt not speak ill of thy fellow republican here on a on a regular basis here in tennessee that is a a tennessee republican we can't we can't hold members of our party accountable to to our principles we don't have the luxury of doing that and and when you when you do that in the party you are an an outcast which is why the party somewhat is disgusted with me except their uh, our 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 footprint i believe is growing and and the conservative grassroots are growing and they're having a little bit of a little bit more trouble but but to the but to the point you made earlier i completely agree with you we we do have a two party system and 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 i think you described it perfectly it absolutely is the the democrats is progressive party with establishment republicans versus the conservatives that's absolutely the way i see it that's tennessee in a nutshell well we we don't usually talk about federal things here we we are very state focused but i think we're going to have a yeah, little bit of yeah we should definitely talk about debt I mean, ceiling I, you're 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 sort of in that fight uh, up there a little bit in dc and i know you're i know the house freedom caucus counterpart to the states have uh and we're in a pretty serious fight here over our debt ceiling and uh, would love your insight to some of those things. Well, yeah. this just shows how the Uniparty operates, right, is we thought that we could count on uh, Speaker McCarthy to uh, listen to conservatives. That's what the deal was struck in January when he was elected Speaker. And I don't want to say that we thought that he was going to listen to us. But we put all of the guardrails on so that it would be hard for him not to. And when push came to shove, it was very clear that he had no intention of of listening to conservatives. And so that's why he struck that deal with Biden and, and Chuck Schumer. Let me make one point about the actual bill. Mm -hmm. um, the supporters of it claimed that the Republican supporters of it claimed that it cut spending for the first time in history and and you were in divided government, so we can't get everything that we want. Well, the more that we're looking at this bill after the fact, unfortunately, it's become quite clear that this bill increases spending and that a clean debt ceiling actually would have been preferable. And so I think a no vote on the debt ceiling 
is going to be like a, a a fine bottle of wine. It's just going to get better and better. And the people that voted yes are going to uh, regret it. And I hope that that information gets down to the voter uh, in time for primaries next year, because once they realize that this was just a total scam, then then the, the jig is up. Well, well, I was told by by some, you know, some Republican members of our Tennessee contingency that that voted yes, that it was. And I, I'd like some more details because I'm I'm going to play dumb here on this differentiation between a, a clean debt ceiling and the spending cuts that they were basically sold this idea, I think. Again, I'm just throwing out names here, but my understanding is I know Marjorie Taylor Greene seems like she was going around sort of selling that idea. And I think some of our conservative members sort of bought that. What is the the benefit or not benefit to the to the clean debt ceiling idea? Because I and also I want to make sure the discrepancy I have in my mind, I saw there was a difference between a possible f- additional four trillion dollars, you know, of debt versus I think like 20 or 30 billion dollars in in cuts and spending cuts so the the is that the disparity between the in the, the spending and and what's supposed is that really a cut that's a pretty small percentage of the increase well it, it was sold as 29 billion in cuts plus a lot of future possible cuts and as we know future cuts mm. aren't yeah real not cuts real. at all and so what the deal was is that raise the debt ceiling for four trillion and you got 29 billion in cuts. But like I said, as we're learning more about the bill, we're learning about the work requirements that were part of the food stamp program. Once we've understood all of the machinations of the bill, we're realizing that there that the the cuts will not materialize. But let me make one broader point. There's a congressman, uh Democrat John Dingell from Michigan. You may mm-hmm. have heard of him. Yep. I think he served in the House for like 50 years and is, <laughs> he, he's since passed away and his wife is there in, in a seat now yep. and will probably serve another 10 or 15. But he had a very poignant quote that he used to say, which is, if you let me write the procedure and you write the policy, I'll screw you every time. And his point is mm-hmm. that oh, you want to pass the fair tax or you want to pass the RAINS Act, that's fine. You you present the bill, but I get to write the procedure. I get to write how it's going to be debated and the timetable mm-hmm. and the amendments and everything like that. And he'll screw you every time, yep. which is correct. The point, though, is that the entire structure of the U.S. Congress or in, in Nashville or in any of the other state capitals, all of the norms that operate in these legislative bodies, all of it is designed to result in the outcome that the establishment Mm -hmm. wants. And so for the lawmakers who play along with the process, they are going to get screwed all the time. And that's why you saw a lot of what you would assume are otherwise conservative Republicans supporting this deal. It's because they they colored within the lines. They played along with the process. What the House Freedom Caucus does and what our state Freedom Caucuses does is we shatter those norms. We 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 destroy those boundaries. That's why the House Freedom Caucus voted against the rule, which is the procedural vote that you have before you debate a bill. If you can take down a rule, which is totally against procedure, Mm -hmm. totally against process, you are basically telling the establishment, giving them the middle finger. When you go against them like that, you're shattering the norms. And and I know I'm kind of esoteric about this, but you cannot follow the process and expect to win. And that's what happened with the debt ceiling fight. And, And we see that locally, again, to tie it back to Tennessee, Gary can tell you about all of the bills, really good bills for individual liberty, whether it's healthcare freedom, whether it's religious liberty, whether it's having to do with um, uh, election integrity. Election I mean, integrity, what, thank you. Is. Yeah, doesn't even get out of committee. Doesn't even get a. Some of them didn't even get a vote in they committee. They don't. They don't even get a a, a motion for a second. <laughs> I mean, it's or it it gets out of committee because the conservatives somehow won. It gets on the floor and then the speaker says, uh, there are some technical errors in here. And since I'm in charge of the process, I'm going to send it back to another committee. Yes. And they... that other committee is stacked with his henchmen. And so they just kill it in committee. Yep. 
it's there, there's there are all of these tactics that they have available to them that are part of the process. And and what do you fiscal notes. to shatter the process? Fiscal notes. Fiscal no- in Tennessee. Fiscal notes. Fiscal yes. notes have been put on all good bill whenever they get to the floor and and what was it? We so talk- it's like, oh, we pass it, but I'm so sorry. We've got to place it behind the budget. You know, I mean, oh, it wasn't in the governor's budget. Darn. And and then and then when it when it gets, you know, two days to shiny die out of the session, they'll they'll be like, oh, we ran out of time. Mm-hmm. We would have taken up the bill, oh. but we ran out of time. <laughs> hey, I wanted to ask something because I just heard this uh, secondhand. Is it correct that Kevin McCarthy this week after? The negotiations with Biden, I think this might have even been after the House passed the debt ceiling, that he admitted to only knowing 11 percent of what was even in that package. I don't doubt it. Um, I, I, I had not seen that, but I don't doubt it. I mean, the, the, this is how they play. Right. And I, maybe you heard Brad Sherman, a, a Democrat from California. As soon as the House passed it, he said, now we can let the cat out of the bag. We it, totally rolled the Republicans. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> They used to hide that stuff. Now they just talk about it openly. I, I think it makes us yeah. look like we, our, our guys have, no, I mean, not that we, as you said at the beginning, not that we expected Kevin McCarthy to actually share our values, but we had put him in such a tight framework that we thought that he would not overstep. Which brings me to this question. Do you think or suspect that McCarthy cut a deal with the Democrats? In my mind, this is what I think probably happened. He's like, guys, you know I'm going to lose my speakership for doing this, or they're going to call for a motion to vacate because that was part of the rules. But I'll pass this bill. You know, I'll, I'll go ahead and fight for your principles or what what squishy Republican principles he believed uh, should be in there. If you agree to vote for me, should they? Uh, should someone stand and call and make a motion to vacate the chair? Do you think that that might have happened behind the scenes? I think it's worse than that. Um, well, I think it's slightly different than that. I think to give McCarthy the benefit of the doubt, I think he's dealing with a lot of different constituencies. He's got the defense hawks who are just like spend, 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 mm-hmm. spend. He's got the House Freedom Caucus who wants to just ratchet things down. And then he's got a bunch of rank and file Republicans who care very little about anything except getting reelected. Mm-hmm. And so he's going through and making sure where everybody stands and the end result is well i got to go along with the democrats because i've got to help my uh rank and file get their earmarks in bills i've got to help the defense hawks because they're going to retaliate or side with the house freedom caucus i got to do all these things and i personally as mccarthy have no ideology at all so i think that politically for me it's safe to get in bed with the Democrats and pass this. Am I worried about the House Freedom Caucus coming after me? Yeah, but we'll fight that at a later fight and we'll put maximum pressure on them at that time. But today we need to pass this big bill and get it taken care of because of all the special interests that I've got to deal with. So we like to That's get- That's my point of view. Yeah. Well, we like to get into some of the nitty gritty with our audience because we always want to make sure that people understand, you know, we always talk about going past the headline, you know, going past the title, like read the bill, like there's more to it than meets the eye. And on this issue in particular, just just some details about the rules package or the rules vote, because I, I, I want to better understand it as well. I think what I gather is that's where the real fight was. And that's, that's perhaps where the real stand could have been made. So for people trying to discern where their congressmen stood on the issue or where the conservative values were on this issue, it's not just the vote on the bill itself. It was actually the vote on the rules. And I, and correct me if I'm wrong. I think at the end of the day, the final tally, there were, there were 29 Republicans, I think that held the line on voting no to the rules. But, but, there was a, there there were some freedom caucus members that sort of fell off, and so I, I just I want to understand that rules fight a little bit better and and how we could have fought harder and and if we could have gotten more Republicans to stand firm, could we have won that battle? I don't think so, but let me explain the rule because it's it is wonky stuff, but it's really fascinating and interesting. When a freshman to Congress is elected for the first time, and Andy Ogles uh, can experience this firsthand, and I'm sure he'll tell you this, leadership will come up to you and 
the they say there are only two things you need to do. Two things. One, you got to get reelected, and two, you got to always vote for the rule. Those are the only two things you got to do. <laughs> Jeez. And and when it, when I say vote for the rule, basically in the House before a bill can come to the floor and be voted on, you have to vote on the rule. And the rule is basically the rules on how that bill is going to be debated. So for the debt ceiling, uh, for instance, the rule said, okay, there are going to be these amendments. Uh, we're going to debate uh, for 30 minutes on both sides. It could be an hour. It could be three hours. Uh, there could be no amendments. The, it, the rule package basically defines how the bill is going to be fought. And regardless of what the content of the bill is, the tradition in the U.S. House is that if you're in the majority, and in this case it's Republicans, you are always expected to vote with the party and vote for the rule. And whoever the minority is, the Democrats, it is always expected that you oppose the rule. So even if there's a bill that allows murder, you are expected as a Republican to support the rule. And they act very uh, aggressively against you if you oppose the rule. And it can be political terrorism. I mean, they can they'll they'll be nice to you and say, don't do this, don't do this. And then if you do do it, they'll be like, well, we're going to take away your committee uh, slots. We're going to call lobbyists and tell them not to write pack checks to you. And if you really upset us, then we're going to find a primary opponent to actually go against you. And so on the debt ceiling fight, House Freedom Caucus members, a lot of them who have voted against rules so often that it doesn't matter anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the toughest no vote on a rule is your first one. And then after that, all the, the rest of them are, are easy. So the Democrats all voted against the rule on the debt ceiling. All the Republicans uh, voted for it, except for some of the House Freedom Caucus members. And so had they gaveled down, the rule would have been defeated, and that would have prevented the debt ceiling vote from the bill to be on the floor and debated. At the time that it was on the floor and it was about to be defeated, McCarthy just looks over at Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader, and says, you got to deliver the rest of the votes. And if you go on to C-SPAN and actually mm. watch the floor as this is happening, you see a lot of Democrats switch Jeez. their vote from no to yes. So it was all orchestrated. It was all pre-planned. Let me make one more point. Hakeem went up to McCarthy uh, almost assuredly and said, I'm a no vote unless you need me. And if you need me, you're going to pay a pound of flesh mm. for it. And as soon as Hakeem delivered the votes and the rule passed, somebody in the press went up to McCarthy and said, what did you have to pay Hakeem yeah. for that? And he said, nothing, nothing at all. But then it was later revealed uh, that the price tag was a bunch of earmarks that, that the Democrats were now going to get. So this is the nastiest backroom, smoke-filled, mm -hmm. sausage-making stuff. What, what do we call that, imagine. Kevin? That's more more fees for friends. Fees for friends. Fees for friends. And and literal horse trading at the expense of our liberties. And and that's right. And and w when was this Wednesday? Like we all witnessed this, or a lot of people witnessed this in Technicolor. But that's just every day mm. in Congress. I mean, this happens every single day in Congress. Well, thank you for that bad, <laughs> that very bad news. But I, I think that's, it is fascinating. And I think our audience will really appreciate that, even though it will disturb them deeply. I, I'm I'm kind of speechless on that. Well, what, so uh, one thing I would just say is don't ambivalently go into the polling booth and vote for a Republican and just say, well, he's he's a friend or he's a good guy. I saw him give a good speech once. Don't go in with that attitude. Go in with that guy has betrayed us one too many times. I don't even care, you know, who the other Republican is in the primary. I'm voting for that person as a as a protest vote, right? Just to send a message. Yeah, and that's if there's nothing else we do here, we can educate our audience because every two years there's there is an opportunity to to make your voice heard for that reason. And I think the people that are within our community, they're within the state who who have represented themselves to be with us, if they're making decisions that are not exactly with us, A, they need to hear from their constituents, 
And B, they need to be made aware that if it doesn't change, why should we continue to give you our votes? Well, and, and so leading, kind of leading into the final moments here, like I'm going to shift back to a, a Tennessee focus. So with, with your experience, all that you've seen, you know, what's going on nationally, you, you've been here to Tennessee, you've, you've spoken with some of our legislators, you see what's happening with uh, the red flag laws. So, so two, two things I'd like you to, to sort of expound on a, a little bit. One, what should we be doing in Tennessee? How can we fight against this special session being called by the governor? Let's see where you want to go with that. And secondly, from your perspective, what, what steps should conservatives be taking uh, in order to, in, in hopes to get a state freedom caucus network here in Tennessee? First question is easy. Brian Ritchie, a state rep in Tennessee, was the the lead author of the open letter to Governor yep. Lee saying we, are aware. we should not we should not have a, a special session on gun laws. I believe that open letter has five signatures of state reps and one state senator. Abysmal. Four. You're you're correct. That number needs to go Way exponentially up. higher. Mm-hmm. We need more state reps to sign on to that letter. And if but but Andy Way, you know you know why one why one state rep said you know actually two they they couldn't sign on to the letter there were just it was poorly written and there there were too many grammatical errors Andy so that's, <laughs> that's what you don't that's what you don't understand Andy you see then then the answer is then put out your own press statement <laughs> okay, exactly um, the point is is that they have to be put on record as to where they stand and you're either on the letter or your silence or your rejection of the letter. Uh, makes you a, a, a bad guy. Complicit. You're on the no side. Yep. So it's it's a very simple thing. Um, that's a very simple answer. And what I would tell the grassroots organizations and the and the voters is to call up their state lawmakers and and put their feet to the fire on where they stand on that letter. That's great. So the, so the demand a public statement and then and then steps for a freedom caucus here in Tennessee. So. That's going to be a tough one. I mean, you it's very difficult to change the current members' worldview and convince them that all the squishy things that they're doing now needs to stop, and now you got to be a righteous, awesome, conservative fighter. That's arguably not possible. I bet you could get two or three or four of the current crop, and some of them are likely going to be freshmen, to find their way, but I think it's going to require new blood. Mm-hmm. Um I, I just think that that's the case. The best way that you can identify this is the budget. Your budget, your state budget, passed unanimously. Mm. Always, when, almost when you, always does. Right, and and here's the thing: that's the way it is in every state. And I have been in states where, if two people oppose the budget, they basically get excommunicated to the moon. And they just get punished, even though the budget safely passes. That's how swift and how painful the punishment is that's delivered by the establishment. I, they need absolutely unanimous support for the budget in order for them to keep their control. But when you see Republicans and Democrats unanimously supporting your budget, the budget, you know your pocket is being fleeced. And so the very first step in order to create a Freedom Caucus is that you need to see no votes on the budget. What? And that's, that's, a great, that's a great tangible thing. Thank yeah, you for no, that. I think that's a very tangible. Well, but, let me make one more point. Okay. By Republicans voting for that budget, they are explicitly saying that government is not big enough in Tennessee mm-hmm. and that it needs to be bigger. And... When it's framed that way, then there's no room for excuses for them. And that's that's what you got to put. It, it has to be a yes vote on that budget is a yes to the stadiums. It's a yes to all of the things that are You're absolutely right. It's a yes to every agency, right? Every agency that is far more leftist than even the legislature. But I have a, a philosophical. And, and the universities right. that, that they're funding yep. and all the woke garbage mm-hmm. that they're pushing out. Yeah, we go. And all we the we go on the, the agencies they're pushing out. Yeah, we go. That's that's a great point. We go on the campaign trail and we talk about, oh, we're against CRT. We're against DEI. And we're going to fight it. We're going to pass laws. But then on, in the budget. But then you fund it. That's, that's yep. a, yeah. So I have a philosophical question. 
you said that this happens in many or all states. Why do you think that the ire is is so great? If if for example, if two House members in Tennessee, right? There's 99 between House and Senate in the ten- in Tennessee legislature. Well, 132 between both. There's sorry, 99 sorry, in the 99 House. House. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Gary. You see, that's that's <laughs> that's why I'm not I'm just your playing, seat. Just playing my part. If only two of them voted, or five, it, which has no political significance as far as being able to impede the budget from passing. Why does that bother them so much? I mean, all, not all other legislation passes unanimously. Because those two people represent hope. And there are a lot of state lawmakers who want to vote no, but who are forced to vote no because of all the the carrots and sticks that mm. the establishment parades. So if they see two no votes, then there are maybe a dozen or two dozen members who are thinking, you know what, I should have done that. Yeah. And next year I'm going to do it with them and we're going to defeat this garbage. There can be no oxygen in the room for traitors, yep. according to the establishment. There can be none. You have to swiftly exterminate any opposition to the budget. There can be no hint that the king is is being challenged. Yes, which demonstrates that the king knows he is doing something wrong. Correct. Exactly. And and just just to make the point about the stick, I mean, you know that Representative Brian Ritchie out of Blunt County freshman is by exponential margins one of our most conservative representatives here in the state just by virtue of what he's willing to put forward in legislation, knowing that you know, the establishment is, is is against, you know, limiting the governor's emergency powers, election integrity, you know, freedom from these medical mandates, on and on and on and on. And yes. And, and well, and so he does it. But here's the here's the stick, you know, um, as he was moving some of that legislation, there were a couple of bills that got, you know, in the in the House, in committees, we we go by voice votes. There's no roll call votes in the House unless the uh, bill sponsor calls for a vote before the motions are, are made. And so oftentimes, you know, a bill is killed on a voice vote on a, on a A's or nays, and you don't know how that representative voted. Well, he had a couple of bills killed that way where we knew we had the votes, yet the chairman called the nose and killed the bill. So Richie made a public commitment that for the rest of the session, he was going to demand roll call votes every time he got up to the podium. Well, they don't want to be on record. So his punishment for that was the rest of his bills didn't even get a second to be heard. So he didn't even get to present his bills and ask for the roll call. I mean, the, the way these chairmen and the establishment will lash out on you for, for breaking their tradition or breaking um, with the, the way process. the process, the way they do business, it, you're right. I mean, it's, I think, so I get the budget argument. I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot of, ex, I think there's plenty of reason to expect that a no vote on the budget, you can just kiss the rest of your bills goodbye for the next session. They won't even motion to hear them. But, but what Richie did was exactly right. And what it, what you have to do is bust the process. Mm-hmm. Because, like Dingle said, if I'm in charge of the procedures, then I'm going to win every time. By exposing them and forcing them to vote, Richie now has power that he didn't currently have. And even if they did punish him and hit him over the head with a stick on a bunch of stuff, he now is able to force them to vote on things they don't want to vote on, which means they're not going to have those bills come up or they're going to go back to Richie and say, "Okay, okay, we get it, Brian, like. You're going to make us vote on this stuff. What can we do to make you stop? And imagine and if now, five did it. Imagine if 10 right. were, were willing right. to take it. And now Richie is in a position where he has more leverage to negotiate. He could say, okay, I won't let you vote on uh, the next two or three bills, but you're going to bring another bill up or you're going to kill a bill I don't like and not bring it up. And then if Richie's able to do that, then look to your point, then you've got four people or five people or 10 people. And when you have a voting block that will constantly bust the process, then you've completely shattered the establishment's way of doing business. And that is what a Freedom Caucus is. Those are some really phenomenal, just again, tangible 
yes. nuggets I think that we can carry into the to the fight. Amen. Next session. Thank you for that. And oh, and, and let me make one more point about Richie. If if he gets punished, and I'm assuming that he does. Oh yeah. It is it is absolutely imperative that everybody in his district knows that he got punished by the establishment because the way conservatives win is we have the voters on our mm-hmm. side. We we do. We'll win every time if the voters are properly yep. educated on what happens in the state capitol. And if the voters find out in Richie's district what they're doing to him, he's going to become a rock star. Yep, going to be a hero. And his colleagues are going to look at him and go, well, I want to be a rock star too. And, and, and then they start doing what he's doing. And the establishment. You know, and- next thing you know, you got five, ten solid people that can – Former freedom club mm-hmm. and the establishment's gunning for him. They've all they've already got uh, a, a primary challenger geared up for him. One of the uh, Blunt County commissioners has already announced his his primary challenge. So they uh, he's he's a he's a threat clearly to the to the the process as you say. And it's been a it's been a real treat to have you on. I mean, thank you for you know the the work that you do in D.C. But but the real work that you've been doing with the State Freedom Caucus. I mean, I you know for me I say this again uh, a lot i i feel like i've completely lost the ability to speak into or control what the hell goes on in washington dc not that we ever did and i you know i can't stand what they do in california but i don't care what they do i don't want to control what they do in california i just we we can hold the line here for our the way we want to do life here in tennessee i, I want to build a wall a wall if i could i'd fund a wall around tennessee i mean so you know we're we're working very hard to preserve uh conservative values at the state level because we do believe that's where the win is and uh, clearly you do as well and really appreciate the work you do taking that state to state uh, across the country because i think it's going to be moves like that that is going to preserve uh, the republic uh, on into the future. Yep. Thank you, Andy. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. And thank you, guys. Uh, I truly appreciate what you guys are doing, because as I said before, you know, most people don't know who their state rep is or their state senator. And the mainstream media certainly is not telling them what they need to know. So we need more folks like you who are doing podcasts like this to get out the word. So thank you very much. Thanks so much, Andy. Have a great weekend. If you'd like to learn more about Tennessee Stands, visit tennesseestands.org to donate, volunteer, or get more information about what we're doing to preserve liberty for the people of Tennessee. You can also follow along on all social platforms at Tennessee Stands. As Thomas Paine reminded us, those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigue of supporting it. 